This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Matthew 18, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 14. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14, page 823 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage that we've read this morning and pray now that by the light of your Holy Spirit we would understand it and profit by it as we think about it together now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To the victor go the spoils. Barack Obama won the presidential election last Tuesday, but he didn't do it on his own. And there are a lot of people who were involved in helping him get elected who will expect a place, in some cases a high place, along with him in his administration. And we understand that. We're okay with that. We recognize that that's the principle. When your football team wins, you have bragging rights. When a new coach comes in, others who've worked with him might expect that he would bring them on his staff. When a new CEO comes in, takes over, others who have worked with him in the past might expect that he would have them come in and work with him in the new corporation. But all of that changes 
when it comes to the kingdom of God, as Jesus teaches us in our passage this morning, all along, Jesus has been, his, uh, has been teaching his disciples about his identity as the Messiah. And the exciting thing is, uh, they're starting to get it. They are starting to understand who Jesus is. And they, that means that the messianic kingdom is just around the corner. And that means that uh, top places in that nascent kingdom are up for grabs. Now, obviously, Jesus was going to be top man. But who was going to be number two? Who was going to be number three? Who was going to be among those holding the top positions next to Jesus? Big things were afoot. They were part of it. And it was time to start dropping hints to Jesus. Kind of start elbowing one another as they jostle for those top positions in the incoming imminent new administration. Well, those are the kinds of concerns that they had on their minds. And those concerns betray uh, the fact that as much as they did understand, there was still a lot that they didn't get about who Jesus was and about the nature of this kingdom that they were going to be a part of. And that's true for us as well. They were looking for greatness in the kingdom, but they were looking for it in the wrong way, in a worldly way, in a way that was out of sorts with the kingdom Jesus had come to establish. And so Jesus teaches them here, and he teaches us uh, an important lesson about his kingdom. And the lesson is this. In the kingdom of heaven... The way up is the way down. Or to put it another way, kingdom greatness is found in humility. Kingdom greatness is found in humility. Like the disciples, we're so used to seeing greatness, the world's way of seeing greatness, that sometimes we too carry that over into the kingdom, into the church. And it doesn't work there. We need a different perspective. Actually, we need several different perspectives as Jesus lays them out here. Uh, the disciples were concerned about the wrong thing. And Jesus tells them, he tells us several priorities that we should instead be concerned about. And so the question, who's going to be at the top? There are other priorities that should be on their minds and that should be on our minds as well. First of all, Jesus tells us in verses 3 through 5 that we should concern ourselves not with being at the top, but with cultivating humility. We should concern ourselves with cultivating humility. Look at verse 3. First thing Jesus says is humility is required even to enter the kingdom. Verse 3, truly Jesus says, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus, as it says, has taken a child that was there and called him to them. If they were still in the house, as in the end of chapter 17, maybe as a child of Peter, one of the other disciples who was there. We don't know, but there was a child, and Jesus takes the child, and he puts the child in front of them, holding the child, and he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Turn, Jesus is saying their whole thinking needs to do an about-face, a 180. They need to reorient themselves and how they're thinking about the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish and become like children, pure, innocent, holy, right? 
The only ones nodding their heads have never had children. That's not the aspect, or any of us. None of us is pure, holy, and innocent, including our children. Uh, children have a will, as parents discover. And that will, too, is bent by sin. Uh, for some reason, children learn to say mine and need to be taught to share, which they do reluctantly. And that's true of all of us, not just our children. Our children, like we, are sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, and, and are part of this fallen world. When Jesus says become like children, what is he saying? Well, he could be talking about humility, but I know, I know children that, you know, that, that are quite proud, you know, that are not naturally humble. I think what Jesus is referring to is simply the smallness of the child physically and socially. Children, especially in that day, had no real standing. In fact, in our culture, we tend to so focus on our children that we sort of miss what they had in their society where the focus was absolutely not on children. Uh, children really didn't count a whole lot in, the, in people's reckoning about things. Uh, not to say they didn't love them or care for them in certain cases, but um, children were minors. They were children, and uh, they just had to get along the best they could in a world that was very much oriented toward the adults. And Jesus is saying, unless you become like this child, low in stature in the midst of the world, and yes, ultimately of a, of a humble position, which is what children had in the world. He says, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we understand that. To become a Christian, you have to acknowledge your sinfulness. You have to acknowledge your inability to save yourself. You have to acknowledge there's nothing you can do to earn or gain heaven on your own. We do humble ourselves. But Jesus kind of backs up. He says, let's, let's step back and let's look at what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have to humble yourselves. You can't come in boasting. You can't come in proud of yourself and your accomplishments. It will never work. You're tainted by sin. The best things you've done, you need to repent of, at least some aspect of them. So he takes us a step back and says, look, even to get into the kingdom of heaven requires that you become like a little child that you become small, that you become humble, that you recognize that you have no standing and you can't do anything on your own. But then also Jesus talking about cultivating humility then moves forward and says it's not just entering the kingdom that requires humility. It's any kind of activity or standing within the kingdom that requires humility. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So once you're in, then we start touting our accomplishments, right? We start boasting in who we are and what we can do. No. To enter the kingdom of heaven requires humility. To advance to greatness in the kingdom of heaven requires not place-seeking, but even more humility. The humility of the position of that little child in their midst. That's what Jesus is saying here. But then he turns around and says in verse 5 that we also need humility in order to have a regard for others in the kingdom. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, we need to be careful here because Jesus is not talking necessarily about actual literal children. He's talking about Christians, those who have believed in him, those who are humbled in him, who have become like a little child. The little ones here isn't necessarily a literal child, but a Christian who has a childlike heart before his father, humble, dependent, acknowledging our inability. And Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What does that mean, to receive one in his name? Well, to welcome them, to accept them. Maybe literal hospitality, 
uh, to accept another believer for the sake of Christ into your home, but maybe even just personally to pay attention to that person, to have a regard for that person for the sake of Christ, because that's a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus says when we do that, we receive Jesus himself. Because that's a person who bears his name. That's a fellow brother, sister. That's another Christian who bears the name of Christ. And to receive that person in Christ's name is as if it were to receive Christ himself. But, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who who believe in me to sin, be better to have a millstone tied around his neck and drowned. What does he mean? Well, it could mean trying to entice a believer to sin, which... Jesus is very broad here. Whoever, that could include a non-Christian, who lures a Christian into sin uh, is a horrible thing. But as Jesus is speaking to believers here, his disciples, we could imagine that another Christian might do this as well. Now look at the context. You're talking about tension among the disciples. Who's going to be greatest? Who's going to be first? Who's going to be above another? And that kind of thing can hurt, can wound, can offend The Christian who maybe isn't in the top position, who's been stepped on as someone else is making his way to the top. And that might make them bitter. It might make them withdraw. It might hurt their walk with Christ. And Jesus is speaking, I think, about that kind of thing here. That in any way, to cause one of his sheep to sin, Jesus says it would be better to die. Puts it a little more graphically than that. He says, it would be better to have a large millstone. The word, the adjective there is mulas, the kind of stone that a mule moves. Not just a little hand stone, but a big one. Uh, Last week, uh, Barbara and I and children did something we do most falls, made our way up to uh, Helen, Georgia. We we laugh about it now. We have almost a set routine we follow, and we joke about, well, we can't do that. Haven't done that before. We have to do this because we always do this. Hike up to Anna Ruby Falls, see the waterfalls. Really pretty. Boy, and last week with the trees, it was just magnificent. But one of our stops, one of the things we have to do, is to stop at the Nora Mills Granary, uh, just south of Helen. If you've been there, maybe you've been to the granary. It was built in the 1800s, and it doesn't look like a thing has been changed since. Uh, but it's powered by the Chattahoochee River that runs right along behind it. And you can actually see uh, how grain is, is ground, and they make uh, cornmeal and grits and all kinds of things there. But you can see the millstones. And there's two of them, one that's stationary and the other that actually rotates over the stationary one. The grain in between is ground, and each of those millstones weighs about 1,500 pounds. And it looks like a giant lifesaver, big, round, with a hole in the middle. And that's, I think, what Jesus has in mind here. It would be better if you were someone who is leading another believer into sin to have one of those stones dislocated, tied to your neck, and throw you into the sea. It's better to have that happen to you than it is to be in a position of causing one of Christ's little ones to sin, whether you are an unbeliever or whether you are a believer. And that's how, importantly, we should take it that we encourage one another in righteousness and not be a source of stumbling or sin for a brother or sister in Christ. And it takes humility to love others, not to, to walk on them, that we hurt them, that we make them angry, that we should cause them to sin in some way, 
but that we seek their well-being. So first of all, Jesus is saying we should be concerned as Christians with cultivating humility, not thinking about who's going to be the top man, top dog, but that we should be concerned with this kind of humility in our own lives. But second, another priority is that we should be concerned with, as he says here, pursuing holiness. First, cultivating humility. Second, pursuing holiness. Look at verse uh, uh, 7. Jesus says in verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary that temptations come. Jesus is taking a broader look and saying this is a world where people, including Christians, are tempted to sin. That's just the way it is. Woe to this world because it is such a, a, a place of temptation, a place of sin, a place of stumbling. It is a hard place to live for the glory of God. And woe is, is a pronouncement basically of judgment, of the doom of the world for that reason. Jesus says it's necessary that temptations come because the world is fallen. Jesus himself knew what it was to be tempted, never sinned. But he says, woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Again, pronouncement of judgment. If you are one who is leading others into sin, whatever form that might take, Jesus is saying, woe to you, you know, basically the judgment of God upon you. But then we turn that around. If you're that kind of person, then something's desperately wrong in you. And that's why Jesus turns the focus uh, in verse 8 and 9 from the other person to ourselves. Now, we've seen this kind of language before. Jesus says it's, it's better to cut off your right hand if your right hand's causing you to sin and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life without that hand than it is to have both your hands and go into hell. And Jesus says if your right eye causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. Better to enter eternal life, to enter heaven with one eye than with both eyes to go into hell. Now, there's a lot going on here. First of all, the reality of hell itself. Jesus believed in hell. Jesus believed in a place of eternal fire, eternal condemnation, uh, where those who persist in their rebellion against God till their death go. Jesus himself spoke about the reality of hell. But his point here is to avoid it. His point here is that as Christians, we should take extreme measures to deal with sin in our lives. Now, should we cut off our hand? I think Jesus was speaking by hyperbole. I think he communicates in that way. I don't think Jesus literally wants us to cut our hand off or pluck our eye out. He's using that as a figure of speech to say, this is how serious you should take sin in your life. It's not something to wink at. It's not something to play at. It's not something to presume upon the grace of God with. Dealing with sin in your own heart, and certainly that you should not lead others into sin. But it's deadly serious. It's life or death. It's heaven or hell. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I can't go to hell. I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for my sins. Well, if you love your sin and entertain your sin and are not willing to deal with sin in your life, then either you are a very misinformed Christian or you are no Christian at all. Because if Christ has changed your heart, if the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within you, you can no longer be at home with sin. And I don't care who out there claims to be a Christian, if they're at home with sin, if their conscience is at ease with disobedience to Christ, they're no Christian. Now, Jesus isn't saying that if we sin at all, we're going to hell, even as professing Christians. We still sin. But as Christians, we hate our sin. As Christians, we'll do anything we need to to address sin in our lives. 
That might mean spending more time in the Word. It might mean calling a Christian brother or sister to help hold us accountable, to ask us how we're doing. Uh, it might mean making ourselves vulnerable to another person in that way. But it means that we will do anything. We'll humble ourselves to any degree to deal with and address sin in our lives because we recognize how serious God takes sin, how serious Christ takes sin, therefore how seriously we should deal with sin in our own lives. So holiness in others, instead of causing them to stumble or sin, doing all we can to promote holiness in others, and that starts with doing all we can to promote to, uh, to pursue holiness in ourselves. So cultivating humility is a priority. Pursuing holiness in ourselves and in others is a priority. And then the third priority that Jesus answers his disciples' ambition with is we should be concerned with valuing other people. Look at verses 10 through 14. Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now again, directly perhaps referring to a child, but the lesson is talking about his people in their humility. Maybe who are too humble to be place-seeking, to be looking for the top spots. Don't despise them. Don't look down on them. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What's that about? Some have used this passage to argue for the uh, idea of a personal uh, guardian angel. Uh, They're angels. Well, it doesn't exactly say that. There is a group, angels is plural, a group of angels. Now, Hebrews 1.14 does say that the angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. I believe that the angels are involved in our lives and things that happen in the world, Uh, although ultimately all of that under the will and sovereignty of an omnipotent God. But I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I don't think it's specifically saying uh, you know, each child or even each Christian has a particular guardian angel, although all the angels are involved in some way for our welfare uh, in their service to God. Ultimately, they serve the Lord, not us, but they serve us at his command. What's Jesus getting at here? One idea I came across in studying this passage I think is interesting. I uh, don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, I may have to give it more thought. Uh, it's the idea that angels is referring to their spirits and that among those of God's people who have died, their, their spirits are now with God in heaven. So why should we treat the humble Christians in, 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 a, in a contemptible way? Um, for example, uh, when, when Peter was imprisoned in the book of Acts, and the disciples were praying for his release. And he appears at the door. And the servant girl answers the door and says, Peter's at the door. And they say, well, it's his angel. Uh, the idea perhaps being, well, he'd been killed and that's his spirit. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm going to have to think about that some more. Basically, what I think he's getting at here, though, is saying that these Christians in their humility, in their lowliness, are looked after by the very angels of God, the glorious angels of God who are in the throne room or before the presence of God are the same ones who minister to these most humble and the most humble of the, the, the Christians. And so why would you treat with contempt one to whom angels minister by the will of God? That's a powerful point. The angels value that person. You should too. And he goes on to make another point, not only because their angels are before the Father, but because of the Father's personal regard for them. And Jesus tells this parable here of the lost sheep. He says, what do you think? Man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. 
What does he do? Well, he leaves the 99, and he goes out in search of that one. And when he finds it, Jesus says he rejoices over it more than the 99 who never went astray. Now, is Jesus saying that the Father does not value the 99, but he does the one? No, that's not the point. The point is the 99 are okay. They're in the fold, but there's this one out there, and the Father is concerned not just with his people as a whole. Well, it's okay. Still got 99 sheep. What if one of them wanders off? Still got plenty. He's concerned with each one individually. He's willing to go out in search of that one sheep, and he rejoices when he finds it and brings it back. And the point here is the Father's valuing not just his people, but his individual sheep. You and you and you are special or valued by the Father as one of his own. Jesus didn't die for just a nameless, faceless group of people. He died for his sheep individually, one-to-one, for you, by face, by name, and values you as such. And so the lesson here Jesus teaches his disciples is how can you turn around and look with contempt on other believers whom the Father values so highly that he sought that one out and brought him home, brought her home, rejoicing. How can you treat such a one with contempt? Write such a one off. And that's what they were doing. When they were trying to claim top spots, they were, by definition, denying others that honor. Jesus says to them, wait a minute, let's go back. These are the ones whom the angels watch over. These are the ones whom the Father himself values individually, one by one. And you need to learn not to use them as stepping stones to the top, but to value them as people, just as the angels do, just as your Father in heaven does. So those are the lessons Jesus is teaching them. So no spoils to the victor then? Not at all. There are spoils, and Jesus has already spoken about that. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The whole new heavens and new earth, this is going to belong to those humble ones of Jesus, who in humility follow him, who in humility serve him. To Jesus go the spoils. He would win it through his death and through his resurrection. And we share in his victory when we believe in him. We share in his victory when we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Maybe not acclaimed by the world, maybe not even acclaimed by the church, in obscurity and lowliness serving Christ. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom one day? It will probably be someone we've never heard of, who in humility, in Christ-like humility, served and followed Jesus. Well, we share in his victory, and we will share the spoils of his victory. But greatness in those things is attained indirectly, not by seeking greatness as we think of it, but by seeking greatness of another kind. Great in humility, great in holiness, great in our love for people. Let's pray. Father, we would be great in the kingdom in these ways. But Father, we recognize that that greatness is perhaps something we never would perceive in ourselves. But by definition, Father, we would not care to. Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that our concern would be for those things that are priorities with you. Genuine humility, holiness in heart, and a great love for people generally and for your own people particularly because they are loved by you. Father, cultivate these things in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.